The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has many beliefs in common with other Christian churches. But we have differences, and those differences explain why we send missionaries to other Christians, why we build temples in addition to churches, and why our beliefs bring us such happiness and strength to deal with the challenges of life and death. I wish to speak about some of the important additions our doctrines make to the Christian faith. My subject is apostasy and restoration. Last year, searchers discovered a Roman fort and city in the Sinai close to the Suez Canal. Though once a major city, its location had been covered by desert sands and its existence had been forgotten for hundreds of years. Discoveries like this contradict the common assumption that knowledge increases with the passage of time. In fact, on some matters, the general knowledge of mankind regresses as some important truths are distorted or ignored and eventually forgotten. For example, the American Indians were in many respects more successful at living in harmony with nature than our modern society. Similarly, modern artists and craftsmen have been unable to recapture some of the superior techniques and materials of the past, like the varnish on a Stradivarius violin. We would be wiser if we could restore the knowledge of some important things that have been distorted, ignored, or forgotten. This also applies to religious knowledge. It explains the need for the gospel restoration we proclaim. When Joseph Smith was asked to explain the major tenets of our faith, he wrote what we now call the Articles of Faith. The first article states, We believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. The prophet later declared that the simple and first principles of the gospel include knowing for a certainty the character of God. We must begin with the truth about God and our relationship to Him. Everything else follows from that. In common with the rest of Christianity, we believe in a Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. However, we testify that these three members of the Godhead are three separate and distinct beings. We also testify that God the Father is not just a spirit, but is a glorified person with a tangible body, as is His resurrected Son, Jesus Christ. When first communicated to mankind by prophets, the teachings we now have in the Bible were plain and pure and most precious and easy to understand. Even in the transmitted and translated version we have today, the Bible language confirms that God the Father and His resurrected Son, Jesus Christ, are tangible, separate beings. To cite only two of many such teachings, the Bible declares that man was created in the image of God, and it describes three separate members of the Godhead manifested at the baptism of Jesus. In contrast, Many Christians reject the idea of a tangible personal God and a Godhead of three separate beings. They believe that God is a spirit and that the Godhead is only one God. In our view, these concepts are evidence of the falling away we call the great apostasy. We maintain that the concepts identified by such non-scriptural terms as the incomprehensible mystery of God and the mystery of the Holy Trinity are attributable to the ideas of Greek philosophy. These philosophical concepts transformed Christianity in the first few centuries following the deaths of the apostles. For example, philosophers then maintained that physical matter was evil and that God was a spirit without feelings or passions. Persons of this persuasion, including learned men who became influential converts to Christianity, had a hard time accepting the simple teachings of early Christianity. An only begotten Son, who said He was in the express image of His Father in heaven, and who taught His followers to be one as He and His Father were one. 
and a Messiah who died on the cross and later appeared to his followers as a resurrected being with flesh and bones. The collision between the speculative world of Greek philosophy and the simple, literal faith and practice of the earliest Christians produced sharp contentions that threatened to widen political divisions in the fragmenting Roman Empire. This led Emperor Constantine to convene the first church-wide council in 325 AD. The action of this Council of Nicaea remains the most important single event after the death of the Apostles in formulating the modern Christian concept of deity. The Nicene Creed erased the idea of the separate being of Father and Son by defining God the Son as being of one substance with the Father. Other councils followed, and from their decisions and the writings of churchmen and philosophers, there came a synthesis of Greek philosophy and Christian doctrine in which the Orthodox Christians of that day lost the fullness of truth about the nature of God and the Godhead. The consequences persist in the various creeds of Christianity, which declare a Godhead of only one being and which describe that single being or God as incomprehensible and without body, parts, or passions. One of the distinguishing features of the doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is its rejection of all of these post-biblical creeds. In the process of what we call the apostasy, the tangible personal God described in the Old and New Testaments was replaced by the abstract, incomprehensible deity defined by compromise with the speculative principles of Greek philosophy. The received language of the Bible remained, but the so-called hidden meanings of scriptural words were now explained in the vocabulary of a philosophy alien to their origins. In the language of that philosophy, God the Father ceased to be a father in any but an allegorical sense. He ceased to exist as a comprehensible and compassionate being, and the separate identity of His only begotten Son was swallowed up in a philosophical abstraction that attempted to define a common substance and an incomprehensible relationship. These descriptions of a religious philosophy are surely undiplomatic, but I hasten to add that Latter-day Saints do not apply such criticism to the men and women who profess these beliefs. We believe that most religious leaders and followers are sincere believers who love God and understand and serve Him to the best of their abilities. We are indebted to the men and women who kept the light of faith and learning alive through the centuries to the present day. We have only to contrast the lesser light that exists among peoples unfamiliar with the names of God and Jesus Christ to realize the great contribution made by Christian teachers through the ages. We honor them as servants of God. Then came the first vision. An unschooled boy, seeking knowledge from the ultimate source, saw two personages of indescribable brightness and glory, and heard one of them say while pointing to the other, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. The divine teaching in that vision began the restoration of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God the Son told the boy prophet that all the creeds of the churches of that day were an abomination in his sight. We affirm that this divine declaration was a condemnation of the creeds, not of the faithful seekers who believed in them. Joseph Smith's first vision showed that the prevailing concepts of the nature of God and the Godhead were untrue and could not lead their adherents to the destiny God desired for them. After a subsequent outpouring of modern scripture and revelation, this modern prophet declared, The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. 
This belief does not mean that we claim sufficient spiritual maturity to comprehend God, nor do we equate our imperfect mortal bodies to his immortal glorified being. But we can comprehend the fundamentals he has revealed about himself and the other members of the Godhead, and that knowledge is essential to our understanding of the purpose of mortal life and of our eternal destiny as resurrected beings after mortal life. In the theology of the restored Church of Jesus Christ, the purpose of mortal life is to prepare us to realize our destiny as sons and daughters of God, to become like Him. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young both taught that no man can know himself unless he knows God, and he cannot know God unless he knows himself. The Bible describes mortals as the children of God and as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. It also declares that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together, and that when he shall appear we shall be like him. We take these Bible teachings literally. We believe that the purpose of mortal life is to acquire a physical body and through the atonement of Jesus Christ and by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel to qualify for the glorified, resurrected, celestial state that is called exaltation or eternal life. Like other Christians, we believe in a heaven or paradise and a hell following mortal life. But to us, that two-part division of the righteous and the wicked is merely temporary while the spirits of the dead await their resurrections and final judgments. The destinations that follow the final judgments are much more diverse. Our restored knowledge of the separateness of the three members of the Godhead provides a key to help us understand the diversities of resurrected glory. In their final judgment, the children of God will be assigned to a kingdom of glory for which their obedience has qualified them. In his letters to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul described these places. He told of a vision in which he was caught up to the third heaven and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Speaking of the resurrection of the dead, he described celestial bodies, bodies terrestrial, and bodies telestial, each pertaining to a different degree of glory. He likened these different glories to the sun, to the moon, and to different stars. We learn from modern revelation that these three different degrees of glory have a special relationship to the three different members of the Godhead. The lowest degree is the telestial domain of those who receive not the gospel, neither the testimony of Jesus, neither the prophets, and who have had to suffer for their wickedness. But even this degree has a glory that surpasses all understanding. Its occupants receive the Holy Spirit and the administering of angels, for even those who have been wicked will ultimately be heirs of this degree of salvation. The next higher degree of glory, the terrestrial, excels in all things the glory of the telestial, even in glory and in power and in might and in dominion. The terrestrial is the abode of those who are the honorable men of the earth. Its most distinguishing feature is that those who qualify for terrestrial glory receive of the presence of the Son. Concepts familiar to all Christians might liken this higher kingdom to heaven because it has the presence of the Son. In contrast to traditional Christianity, we join with Paul in affirming the existence of a third or higher heaven. Modern Revelation describes it as the celestial kingdom the abode of those whose bodies are celestial, whose glory is that of the Son, even the glory of God. Those who qualify for this kingdom of glory shall dwell in the presence of God and His Christ forever and ever. Those who have met the highest requirements for this kingdom, including faithfulness to covenants made in a temple of God and marriage for eternity, will be exalted to the godlike state referred to as the fullness of the Father or eternal life. This destiny of eternal life or God's life should be familiar to all who have studied the ancient Christian doctrine and belief in deification or apotheosis. 
For us, eternal life is not a mystical union with an incomprehensible spirit God. Eternal life is family life with a loving Father in heaven and with our progenitors and our posterity. The theology of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is comprehensive, universal, merciful, and true. Following the necessary experience of mortal life, all sons and daughters of God will ultimately be resurrected and go to a kingdom of glory. The righteous, regardless of current religious denomination or belief, will ultimately go to a kingdom of glory more wonderful than any of us can comprehend. Even the wicked, or almost all of them, will ultimately go to a marvelous though lesser kingdom of glory. All of that will occur because of God's love for His children and because of the atonement and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who glorifies the Father and saves all the works of His hands. The purpose of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is to help all of the children of God understand their potential and achieve their highest destiny. This Church exists to provide the sons and daughters of God with the means of entrance into and exaltation in the celestial kingdom. This is a family-centered Church in doctrine and practices. Our understanding of the nature and purpose of God the Eternal Father explains our destiny and our relationship in His eternal family. Our theology begins with heavenly parents. Our highest aspiration is to be like them. Under the merciful plan of the Father, all of this is possible through the atonement of the only begotten of the Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As earthly parents, we participate in the gospel plan by providing the mortal bodies for the spirit children of God. The fullness of eternal salvation is a family affair. It is the reality of these glorious possibilities that causes us to proclaim our message of restored Christianity to all people, even to good practicing Christians with other beliefs. This is why we build temples. This is the faith that gives us strength and joy to confront the challenges of mortal life. We offer these truths and opportunities to all people and testify to their truthfulness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear sisters, aloha. aloha. As we share thoughts tonight on strengthening every family, I want to talk about how Relief Society can help accomplish that goal by weaving us together in a strong sisterhood. This is a net, a fisherman's net that my father, Kaninori Nishimura, made in Hawaii many years ago. It has been mine since he died 30 years ago, and I have cherished it for his sake. For me, that moment of casting the net is a supremely beautiful one. I love seeing my father standing on a rocky point on the beach, the net close gathered in his hands, then with a strong, graceful gesture like a dancer, flinging the net up and out. It would unfold in flight, opening like a fan or an umbrella, then fall over the fish that were darting like silver arrows through the surf. The lead sinkers around the edge of the net would make it sink gently to the bottom, completely enclosing the fish. Then my father would jump down into the water and gather the net from the bottom, pulling the outer edges into his hands until he had scooped it up like a bag. He would walk up on the beach, holding the dripping net full of twisting fish in his arms, spread it out, quickly pick out the first for our supper and for the next day, very often a fish or two for several of our neighbors, then release the rest into the sea. I want to compare our sisterhood in the Relief Society to this net. Our living prophet is the net caster directing the Relief Society in its mission. Then there are three ways in which the Relief Society itself functions as a net. First, every single person is important, just as every single strand is important. Second, a net needs to be tended. And third, the purpose of a net is to bring up abundance. My father sorted out the fish that he wanted and put the rest back. 
But the gospel teaches us that each individual is a precious and cherished child of heavenly parents. We are literally all spiritual sisters. Each Relief Society should be a gathering of sisters who cherish each other, not choosing some to keep and throwing some back. All of us are worth keeping. In the case of my father's fish, the net took them out of their native element into alien air where they died. But the gospel brings us together in an environment where we experience some of the cherishing, the kindness, the love, the service, the instruction, and the watching over each other that give us glimpses of what heaven can be like. In fact, we are the fish, we are the net, and we are the fisher simultaneously. The second point about the net that holds true for our sisterhood is that it didn't happen accidentally or spontaneously. It took work. My father made this net with his own hands. He bought the hard twist double ply yarn at our local general store. Then he spent many hours in the evenings after work and on weekends patiently working. He started with this square right here where it would become the center middle of the net. Then he worked outward in a circle, patiently knotting these other squares of a size that he could just get his thumb through. At every corner, he made a square knot so that each square of the mesh was solid and strong. If one strand caught on a rock or ripped through because it was weak, the squares next to it would not unravel. They would hold strong and firm. And every time my father used this net, he took care of it. When he got home, he would rinse it thoroughly in fresh water so that the salt water would not weaken and eat through the fibers. Then he would hang it on the fence, shaking out the folds carefully so that it would dry quickly and evenly. When it was dry, before he folded it up and put it away, he went over the net minutely, inspecting the mesh. If a knot seemed to be loosening or if a string was frayed, he repaired it immediately before it became serious. A net like this would last for many years. It would stay strong because he always took care of it. This is also what happens when we cherish each other, watching over and taking care of each other. We can't prevent rips and damage any more than my father could always keep the net away from rocks when he cast, but we can make sure that we tend and mend our own network every time we use it and every time there is damage. Look around the room at the sisters who are watching the broadcast with you. You are a portion of the church sisterhood, endowed with many strengths and blessings. These strengths include thousands of happy marriages, strong testimonies, partnership in the home with a worthy priesthood holder, children who are learning the gospel and loving it, thousands of hours of compassionate service willingly and sensitively rendered, vibrant testimonies of gospel principles, regular scripture study, concerned bishops and other priesthood leaders, opportunities to serve in ward and state callings, and the blessing of hearing the inspired words of our beloved prophet, President Hinckley, especially on this occasion tonight. We all have a clear vision of the ideal gospel-centered home, and the women in the church work toward that ideal, yearn for it, pray for it, and rejoice in it. But mortality is designed as part of the gospel plan to bring us mingled experiences with good and evil, that we may learn from experience to make wise choices. And many of these experiences are painful in most congregations of sisters, even in hearts and homes in apparently ideal circumstances. There are hidden heartaches and taxing challenges. At least some among you are survivors of abuse and other crimes of personal violence. Death or divorce can visit any home. Suffering comes from wasted potential, faltering faith, the decisions of a loved one who has used his or her free agency to make terrible choices that have wounded himself or herself and others. In your family or in the family of someone close to you is someone dealing with chronic mental, physical, or emotional illness, chemical dependency, 
financial insecurity, loneliness, sorrow, or discouragement. Many sisters are in second marriages with its triple challenges of healing from the loss of a first marriage, working to build a strong second marriage, and compassionately providing part-time mothering to children of your husband's earlier marriage. Every family, whether struggling with problems that seem perennial or whether blessed by ideal circumstances, is a valuable, cherished, and beloved family. The Savior wants you to succeed. Heavenly Father loves you. We love you. We pray that you may be strengthened, that you may receive the help you need, and that you may extend help to others in need. The third point of comparison I want to stress is that our network, like my father's net, is designed to bring you abundance, overflowing blessings, bounteous love, unimaginable grace. My father's net was designed to be used from the beach. But remember that wonderful story in Luke when the Savior told Peter, after a night of fruitless effort, launch out into the deep and let down your nets. Do you remember what happened? The nets were filled with such an enormous number of fish that the nets were in danger of breaking. They called for help in hauling the nets, and both boats almost swamped. The scriptural account doesn't say what Jesus did while these amazed fishermen were making the catch of their life, but I imagine he watched, smiling. You know, the great thing about a beach is all the activity there. You can see people sunning themselves or playing volleyball or having barbecues. You can see crabs scuttling sideways on their fragile little legs and see anemones blooming in tide pools. You can see gulls following the cresting waves to see if any fish become visible for a second. In other words, you can spend your whole life on the beach, and it would always be beautiful and interesting and exciting because interesting, beautiful, and exciting things are going on all the time. But the Savior wants us to pull for the deep, to launch into the deep water, because he has treasures for us that simply don't exist and can't exist in the sand, the froth, and the constant activity of the beach. The Savior says, If thou shalt ask, Thou shalt receive revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge, that thou mayest know the mysteries and peaceable things, that which bringeth joy, that which bringeth life eternal. And the experience of Peter, James, and John tells us that we need partners in pulling in this abundance. But as Psalms 42.7 says, Deep calleth unto deep. The deeps are not just the deep knowledge of the gospel, but also the deeps in you. I hope you have a beach part of your personality where there's a lot of scrambling and laughing and sunning, but I hope there's also a part of you that wants to leave the shallow, sandy self and go into the deep. And sometimes, even when we do not want to, powerful currents of mortality carry us into the deeps, into the deeps of sorrow and suffering and soul-searching. There in the deeps, we discover who we really are and who the Savior really is. Sisters, we in the Relief Society Presidency are mindful of the burdens that you carry. We pray in every meeting that each of you will be strengthened as individuals so that you can, in turn, provide strength to family members friends, your wards, and your communities. We thrill to your gallant courage and cheerfulness. We sorrow with your pain. We are humbled by your faith, and we are nourished by your love. Share your courage, your faith, and your love with each other. Strengthen yourself and strengthen each other. Weave a living network. Everyone has days when it is possible to carry the burden. There are other days when the burden seems to have a crushing weight. Some of you already know the enormous strength that comes from sharing your burdens with someone else who cares for you. Some of you are trying to carry these burdens alone or struggling with the even heavier burden of denial and pretense that there is no burden. 
Please, sisters, recognize that no one can carry your burdens for you except the Savior. But also recognize that each one of us can make a burden lighter by sharing it. Please don't try to carry your burdens alone and don't make a sister do it alone. Recognize that we are here in mortality as a free choice to have experiences with both joy and sorrow. There is a line of appropriateness between sharing your sorrow and broadcasting complaints. I ask you to be sensitive to the struggles of your sisters, <clears throat> to offer a hand, to lift a burden where you can, to be a listening ear when speaking will ease an overburdened heart, to seek that compassionate friend who will understand and reassure and strengthen you at times that are difficult for you. In this way, we tend our nets, strengthen each strand, and keep our sisterhood whole, healthy, and healing. Sisters, in conclusion, remember my father's net and build a living network in your Relief Societies. All family situations take courage, faith, and love. Our relationships as parents and children are based on deeper, older relationships as eternal brothers and sisters, children of a Heavenly Father who loves us and watches over us and yearns that our faith may increase, that our courage may uplift others, and that we may enfold others in our love as He enfolds us in His. In the words of the Apostle Paul, the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts, unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So may it be, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. After my remarks tonight, Martha and Eric Glissmeyer, accompanied by Linda Markets, will perform The Gift of Love. We will then hear from Chieko and Okasaki, first counselor in the General Relief Society Presidency. My message tonight is simple. Please know how I love Relief Society. I know the love and peace and unity that it brings into the lives of women of this Church. Relief Society has been a source of strength in my life. It has helped me raise my family. It has been at the heart of my closest friendships. It's prompted me to learn and grow in the gospel. It has helped me keep my focus on Jesus Christ and what he would have me do. When I was called as General President of Relief Society, I was given counsel by President Thomas S. Monson. I want to share with you just a little of what he said. This is a time of great change in the world and in the Church as we observe modifications in family style and family characteristics. We recognize that there are many single-parent families. There are other families where difficulties exist between husbands and wives. And furthermore, we find the encroachment of the drug culture and other challenges which cause stress in families. You, at this hour of need, have been called to direct the organization which can provide that ameliorating influence, that balm of Gilead, to unite all the sisters in the Church. I want to talk about President Monson's counsel tonight. I want to talk about our families, about Relief Society, and how this great organization can be a balm of Gilead to all of us, particularly in helping us at home. I know of two visiting teachers who had barely be like begun talking to a sister in her home when her two teenager daughters bounced in, announcing they were going to young women. Her husband, who was also leaving for an evening of meetings, detained their three-year-old son, who was determined to accompany his older sisters. The other, two other girls were arguing in the next room over which video to watch. When all the doors were closed, the mother started to cry. It had been, she explained, a long week. The visiting teachers wisely gave this very busy wife and mother a chance to talk. She discussed her week and how much she was missing her recently deceased mother. The three talked and shared their understanding of the gospel and the difficulties of everyday application. The visiting teachers, one is single and has no children and the other is a single parent, praised their sister for all she was doing to raise her family well. 
The mother felt better. The visiting teachers grew closer to each other and to this dear sister. They all felt better. In the true spirit of Relief Society, these visiting teachers strengthened this sister and her home. I feel better. Why? Because this story witnesses what I know, that Relief Society is indeed a bond that unites us, that helps us in our families. Sisters, I testify to you that one of our most important roles as Relief Society members is to strengthen each other so all of us are better able to help our families. We come together, we learn from each other, we go home and strengthen our families. It's that simple. Yet how profound it is that we have this organization to be our bomb of Gilead. President Boyd K. Packer said in a talk to women of the Church, We ask our Sisters of Relief Society never to forget that they are a unique organization in the whole world, for they were organized under the inspiration of the Lord. No other women's organization in all the earth has had such a birth. That divine direction continues today as priesthood leaders counsel with us, give us guidance, encouragement, and inspiration. I am grateful for our prophet, Gordon B. Hinckley, and for the general authorities of this Church who reverence the work of Relief Society. We honor the trust we have been given to show charity, to build individual testimonies of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to strengthen the families of the Church, and focus on living the gospel. We do it in our meetings, in our homes, in our associations. This spiritual perspective is the balm of Gilead, that ameliorating influence spoken of by President Monson that brings peace to the soul. We carry this balm with us all the time, and it makes the difference. Spiritual peace is in short supply these days. For many in the world, this is a time of confusion, mixed signals, scrambled priorities. There will always be problems and pressing issues to draw our attention from the work of the Lord. Remember, Relief Society is the Lord's organization for women. It is much more than a class we attend on Sunday. Service in Relief Society magnifies every sister. A sister from Virginia wrote, I have served in almost all of the callings in Relief Society and obtained a deep love for this auxiliary, which has helped to educate me in several ways. I see those years as the most spiritual and enjoyable of my experience in the Church. Relief Society has taught me that I am a person of worth. In Relief Society, we hold constant the virtues relating to women, mothers, families, and righteous living. At peace with this God-defined direction, Relief Society sisters can bring this balm of Gilead to troubled times. We have the spiritual resources of faith, hope, and compassion to apply as the balm. In ancient days, the balm of Gilead was an aromatic spice used to heal and soothe. Made from a bush or a tree that grew plentifully around Gilead, it was a popularly traded commodity, always in high demand. The strength of the balm is familiar to us through the words of a hymn. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. As a presidency, we desire that every sister in the Church recognize the significance of her service and be magnified in her work in the kingdom of God on earth. Sisters, ours is a sacred calling. As we devote ourselves to the purposes of Relief Society, we will see many of the problems reversed that are plaguing our homes and our communities. The very name, Relief Society, describes our purpose—to provide relief. While we often have the desire and the natural tendency as women to fix what's broken, we are not the solution society. We are the relief society. We understand the power and strength of the fruits of the Spirit described in Galatians—love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. We can soothe the suffering heart when we can't eliminate the trouble. We can bring reassurance and support kindness and calm. When the Prophet Joseph Smith was suffering in Liberty Jail, he wrote of the balm he received from his friends. He said, Those who have not been enclosed in the walls of prison without cause can have but little idea how sweet the voice of a friend is, the token of friendship that comes from whatever source, how it awakens and calls into action every sympathetic feeling. 
Then the voice of inspiration steals along and whispers, Peace be unto thy soul. Joseph recognized the role each of us plays in lifting, helping, and soothing so that the calamities of life can be stilled and the Lord's voice can be heard. This is the balm applied by the Women of Relief Society today. In our worldwide church, there are countless numbers of sisters who put their families first, women who read and ponder the scriptures, who follow the counsel of living prophets, women who are serving in demanding callings, from setting up wilderness camps for laurels to teaching the articles of faith to primary children to greeting at the door of Relief Society on Sunday morning, and the world is blessed by their influence. So much of our contribution is done in quiet ways, sisters, one person at a time. It has always been so. I think of Mary, who bathed Christ's feet after his hot and dusty journey, and then dried his feet with her hair before applying a healing ointment. I think of Dorcas, sometimes called the Relief Society Sister of the New Testament, because her life, through her good deeds, prompted the women to weep and wail at her passing. They pleaded with Peter to restore her to life. I think of Helen, who works with me at the General Relief Society offices, untiring, patient, accommodating of all. Helen is a source of peace. She gives me comfort because I know she's always there, even and fine. I've been privileged to meet many of you. Thank you for the steadfast love you extend to one another, for your example, for your service. Thank you for putting your arms around each other and drawing each other into the circle of sisters that is the heart and soul of a branch, a ward, or a stake. The fifth general president of Relief Society, Emmeline B. Wells, described the influence of the sisters when she said, The sun never sets on Relief Society. I've been to Relief Society gatherings in many parts of the world, and I know that the Lord has no finer forces than the good women in these congregations. Our Balm of Gilead takes many forms, for we minister with both our hearts and our hands. I remember receiving a report from a sister in Georgia assigned to survey the damage done to homes in her stake after severe flooding in their area. She went into the kitchen of one home, sloshing through mud above her ankles, and opened a cupboard. Inside was coiled a water moccasin snake. She quickly shut the door and tried another cupboard, where she was yet eye to eye with another snake. In consternation, she ran upstairs to the second floor, where she met up with an alligator. <laughs> I'd class that as heroic charity. <laughs> A mother in North Carolina who had been cared for by willing Relief Society sisters during an illness said, The sisters have taught me a lesson about the worth of a soul, and that even at the bottom, stripped of all roles, titles, and responsibilities, we are valuable to our Father in Heaven and to each other, and that charity never faileth. Wherever we are, sisters, we can carry with us a reserve of our balm of Gilead, and we can spread it around. It can be as simple as finding a seat in the room by someone who needs you. It may be a thoughtful comment in a lesson that answers another one's prayer. It may be catching someone's eye, lifting a child for a drink from a fountain, sending a note in the mail, reading the scriptures with someone. Or it may be visiting someone you've missed at meetings, someone you hear mentioned in your heart by the still, small voice. These little actions inspire us. They take the edges off our problems. Indeed, out of small things proceedeth that which is great. The giver and the receiver are both blessed. Our strength as Relief Society sisters in the gospel is most visible and most critical at home. Women are the heart of the home. Whatever your circumstance, you are the heart of your home. I call on you to sanctify your home, to make strengthening and nurturing your family your first priority. My sister and I speak often about the family in which we grew up. We were born of goodly parents. My mother was a devoted member of the Relief Society in Cardston, Alberta, Canada. As I was growing up, I felt the influence of the Relief Society sisters in my ward. I realize now that they were one of the constants in my life. My dear father had an unwavering testimony, and at age 88 he gave me his final priesthood blessing. Our grandparents lived just next door, 
something that doesn't happen much anymore. My grandfather served as the stake patriarch, and I served as his transcriber. What a rich blessing that was in my life. My sister Jean and I have happy, peaceful memories of our years at home. Homes can be sacred havens from the world. Homes offer not only shelter in a physical way, but a feeling of security, a sense of belonging, a closeness with other family members. Families live in homes. Families are made up of mothers, daughters, sisters, aunts, and grandmothers. They also have grandfathers, uncles, brothers, sons, and fathers. Families bring us our greatest joys and sometimes our most wrenching heartaches. Families provide a learning environment, a schoolroom from which we never graduate but can always learn. In our families, we learn to appreciate the spiritual peace that comes from applying the principles of charity, of patience, sharing, integrity, kindness, generosity, self-control, and service. These are more than family values, sisters. These are the Lord's way of life. The purpose of the Relief Society organization of the Church, stated in our handbook, is to help women and their families come unto Christ. This means bringing the influence of Jesus Christ into our homes. It means we focus on His gospel and we find joy in living His commandments. It means we re-examine our time commitments and give emphasis to becoming a family that is united and at peace. It's no news to you that this is no easy job. All forms of the media comment on the fragmentation or even the demise of the family. Economic pressures force families to make difficult choices. We're pulled in myriad directions, and yet we must hold gospel principles firmly in place. Our efforts may seem unnoticed and unappreciated, but, sisters, they are worth it. Families are the framework of our lives here and in the eternities. That families are sealed together indicates their central purpose in the Lord's plan, and women have a key role in the family. We set the tone in our homes. We set the pattern for daily living. We set the standards for how people are treated. We are teacher, counselor, confidant, advocate, supporter, and companion. We have a long and significant track record in Relief Society for putting families first. The mother's class was the first standardized lesson taught in Relief Society. Starting in 1901, these lessons were the original mother education course. The intent was to help sisters manage their homes, inspire their children, teach the gospel, and live exemplary lives, just as we do now. In our Relief Society today, we study one lesson a month and focus it on the needs of homes and families. But it doesn't stop there. Homes and families are a central frame of reference in all of our lessons. Because families are close to our hearts, they make us hurt sometimes. Take Lehi and Sariah as an example. How did they feel about the constant bickering of Laman and Lemuel? When Joseph was sold into Egypt, what did he think of his brothers? Did Queen Esther really want to hear from her uncle Mordecai? Who knows, but thou hast come for such a time as this? Families signify responsibility to and for each other. This spring, my seven-year-old grandson David called to see if I could come to his class's spring concert because he said, I have a solo part. It was on a Tuesday, my busiest day, but I promised I would try. On the day of the program, I was there, straining with his parents to identify our little David amidst the sea of faces framed by Mickey Mouse ears. David did have a solo. Every child in the class had a solo. <laughs> but the reward came at the end of the program when he bounded down the aisle saying, Grandma, I knew you'd come. A friend spoke to me recently of her father who had suffered a stroke. She faced a hard time of life as she tried to determine the best way to care for and support him and also consider her mother who had good health and days still filled with promise and grandchildren. Then my friend spoke of the reverence she felt for this time. She said, I'm finding I enjoy learning from him, watching him deal with this difficult process of an aging body. At the most difficult times, our families can hold us steady. 
We learned this well from one of the most wrenching experiences in the history of the world, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We read in John, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister. They were there as they had been throughout his life. My mind darts back to the early years as Mary and Joseph raised this most remarkable child. I can hear Mary comforting the baby Jesus with soothing words that come so naturally to us. I'm right here. And then, at this most dramatic of all times, most dramatic moment, there was the mother Mary. She couldn't soothe his pain this time, but she could stand by his side. Jesus, in tribute, offered these grand words, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. My Sisters of Relief Society, we are the bearers of the balm of Gilead. May your Relief Society sisterhood soothe and bless you. May you know how I support you in all you do for and with your families. May you feel the ameliorating influence the bomb of Relief Society. I leave you with my testimony that God lives, that Jesus is his Son, and that his gospel has been restored in these latter days. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I, brethren and sisters, just a few words in conclusion. First, I'd like to say that we participate in a miracle. As I have listened to all who have spoken, I have noted that there has been no duplication of treatment. Every man and woman who has spoken has chosen his or her own theme to treat. There are no assignments made to any of the speakers concerning what they should say. And yet they all fit together in a pattern that is beautiful and wonderful. I have a profound feeling of gratitude to the Lord for his wonderful blessings upon us. We've listened to wise and inspired counsel. We've been taught and we've been edified. A week ago, a conference of the young women was held in this tabernacle. It was an inspiration to look into their faces, thousands of them. One could not do so without a feeling of peace and certitude concerning the future of this work. The theme of the conference was an appeal to the young women to read the scriptures. I look back to my own youth. Neither young men nor young women were doing much scripture reading at that time. What a marvelous change has been wrought. A new generation is arising who are familiar with the word of the Lord. Growing up in a worldly environment that is laden with immorality and filth of every kind, our youth for the most part are meeting the challenge of living in the world without partaking of the evils of the world. It is with the young men as it is with the young women. Last evening, this tabernacle was filled with fathers and sons, and hundreds of thousands were gathered in all other halls across the church. It is wonderful to feel the pulse of this generation of young people. Of course, there are some who do not measure up. That has been the case since the time of the great war in heaven, described by John the Revelator. The issue then was free agency, as it is today. Then, as now, choices had to be made. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. That ancient struggle continues. 
the unrelenting battle that comes of free agency. Some, unfortunately, choose the wrong, but many, so many, choose the right, including so very many of our choice young men and young women. They deserve and need our gratitude. They need our encouragement. They need the kind of examples that we can come before them, can become before them. May they be blessed as they pursue lives of virtue, of learning, of growing with faith and purpose, all the time remaining true to the faith that their parents have cherished, true to the truth for which martyrs have perished. In the Young Women Conference, emphasis was given to the words of Alma, found in the 32nd section, 32nd chapter of the book of Alma. His teachings can include these words. Awake and arouse your faculties, even to an experiment upon my words, and exercise a particle of faith. My beloved associates, far more of us need to awake and arouse our faculties to an awareness of the great everlasting truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each of us can do a little better than we've been doing. We can be a little more kind. We can be a little more merciful. We can be a little more forgiving. We can put behind us our weaknesses of the past and go forth with new energy and increased resolution to improve the world about us, in our homes, in our places of employment, in our social activities. We have work to do, you and I, so very much of it. Let us roll up our sleeves and get at it with a new commitment, putting our trust in the Lord. Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor fear, but with joy wends your way. Though hard to you this journey may appear, grace shall be as your day. We can do it if we will be prayerful and faithful. We can do better than we have ever done before. The Church needs your strength. It needs your love and loyalty and devotion. It needs a little more of your time and energy. I'm not asking anyone to give more at the expense of his or her employer. We have an obligation to be men and women of absolute honesty and integrity in the service of those who employ us. I am not asking anyone to do so at the expense of your families. The Lord will hold you responsible for your children. But I am suggesting that we spend a little less time in idleness, in the fruitless pursuit of watching some inane and empty television programs. Time so utilized can be put to better advantage, and the consequences will be wonderful. Of that, I do not hesitate to assure you. Now, my beloved brethren and sisters, as we return to our homes, may we go in safety, pondering the things we have heard these past two days. May we go with determination to try a little harder to be a little better. Please know that we are not without understanding of some of your problems. We are aware that many of you carry very heavy burdens. We plead with the Lord in your behalf. We add our prayers to your prayers that you may find solutions to your problems. We leave a blessing upon you, even an apostolic blessing. We bless you that the Lord may smile with favor upon you, that there may be happiness and peace in your homes and in your lives, that an atmosphere of love and respect and appreciation may be felt among husbands and wives, children and parents. May you look to God and live with happiness, 
with security, with peace, with faith. At the opening of this session, the choir sang a wonderful hymn, Faith of Our Fathers, Holy Faith, We Will Be True to Thee Till Death. I'd like to leave that thought with you. Faith of our fathers, holy faith, we will be true to thee with death, till death. God bless you, my beloved associates, in this glorious work, I humbly pray, in the name of him whom we all serve, even the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.